That's Psalm number two on five, four, three. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the degree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flow up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our second reading is taken from Acts 4, um, on verse 24, so that's page 1096. So that's 1096, Acts 4. We'll pick it up in verse 24. It's just a few words in. So, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and, plot the people, and the peoples plot in vain? The king of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This is the word of the Father. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Ali. David, come up. David's going to preach, and I'm going to pray for him. And Hepzibah is uh, delighted that her father is going to preach. <laughs> let's, let's, let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your servant here, David, and we pray that you'd anoint him afresh with your spirit to speak to us today, this evening from this old and very precious psalm. So help him to open it to us. Help him to sit under your word, even as he teaches it. For your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Great. Well, keep that psalm open. We're even going to try a prezi today. I think that's new territory. What are the most futile fights you've seen? The battles where it's not even David against Goliath, because at least David was a lethal slingshotter. Think of Commodus at the end of Gladiator. Maximus has just stabbed him with Commodus's hidden blade. Commodus keeps trying to thump Maximus with a maimed shoulder. Do you remember that moment? It's a completely useless endeavor. Or, or me, trying to wrestle my brother Tom, a man with a sword of honor in the Royal Marines to his name. Or Custer's last stand, where the lone survivor, apparently, according to Wikipedia, was a U.S. Army horse against 3,000 American Indians. Some fighting is useless, dare I say, stupid. 
And it's a little bit like the situation we've just read in this psalm. The first thing we learn in the first three verses is that sinners conspire. Sinners conspire against God. If you're a note taker, that's the first heading. Sinners collude and connive against the God of the universe. Verse 1 emphasizes it. Read with me. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? We're given a picture of the world and its leaders figuring out how they can see God's downfall. They want to get rid of God. Yet it gets worse. It seems to heighten and develop. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together. Not only do they plot against God, then they want to do it together. And they want him destroyed. Let us break their chains and throw off their fetters, they say. It's a scary picture. Imagine all the forces of the the U.S. Army, the Chinese People's Army, the Russian forces, ISIS, all the military might of the world gathering against God to plot his downfall. It's a picture of a world in defiance of God. The world hates God, and they hate his anointed. The writer asks why. Why do they conspire? From what I can tell in this passage, it seems to be the clue is in verse 3, which is their response. They say, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. At the heart of their rebellion is that they find God restrictive. They find that God's ways restrict them, and they want freedom from God's rule. I've been thinking, why is it that people hate rules and authority? You've heard it said, in fact, I've even quoted it, rules are there to be broken. And I think there's a number of reasons why people um, hate authority. One, I think, is distrust. Now, if my wife, Olivia, tells me to do something, and many of you will know the situation, if I don't fully understand it, I won't do it. Do you know the situation? I just don't trust her logic. It doesn't make any sense to me. I disobey. Another reason, I think, is enjoyment. Think of, uh, and Jamie will know this, the 13-year-old boy who goes off to the bushes at school and has a fag. I don't think he's going to massively enjoy that cigarette as he coughs his way through it. But I think he gets a thrill out of disobeying authority. And I think some people disobey because they find it a hassle. It's easier not to do the right thing, to stand up for what's right, because no one cares, and why should I go out of my way to do it? I call that laziness, actually. I think the primary reason we see in this passage is down to distrust. I think the people here, they feel God's ways are either restrictive or plain wrong, and that's why the nations rebel. But the lie is that freedom from God's restrictions is real freedom. They've lost sight of the fact that real liberation is in following God's ways. Trains work really well, and I go on them every day, when they're constrained to tracks. If they didn't stay on the tracks, they're going to be useless. Imagine a cocky train thinks, I'm fed up with these restrictive, steely tracks. They're so constraining. Well, he goes off the tracks, and I can say he's not going to go very far. He won't go anywhere at all. Some kinds of freedom are restrictive. Psalm 119, I love this verse, verse 32. It says, 
I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. The commands, which seem so restrictive, actually following them is where real freedom is. We see this when leaders get rid of doing things God's way, when justice systems go, when corruption is ignored, when the role of the family in society is attacked, when freedom of worship is limited. Time and time again, leaders across nations reject God's way. Sinners conspire. In the early 1950s, many of you will know this story, Mao, the Chinese dictator, he banned Christians and the church from China. He expelled them all, and he got rid of all the missionaries out of the country, so they all, they all left. God had no place in his communist country. He said, I don't want anything of your ways. It's chains. So the missionaries were forced out. Sinners conspired against the God of the universe. The second section in this psalm I'm calling it the eternal proclamation, maybe a clunky phrase, verses 4 to 9. It shows us the other side of this defiance. There's another side to this terrible conspiracy against God, because it is a terrible conspiracy. God responds to the plotting rulers with a decree and a promise that will end their schemes. It's an eternal proclamation. Did you notice, just as the world's plotting seems to escalate, as we looked at in the first three verses. So God's reaction actually seems to escalate as well. Look with me. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. It's not an image for the faint-hearted. It's not a picture of a cute, cuddly God. I'm afraid not. He will ignore your rebellion. No, it's a picture of an almighty God who will not tolerate sin, our rebellion against God. So how does he respond? Firstly, he laughs. God laughs. It's quite a funny thing, actually. He laughs. He mocks them. And now it gets more serious. He rebukes them, and he terrifies them. Imagine a full weight of a rebuke from the awesome God. I could barely handle a rebuke from my housemaster at school. I can't imagine what a rebuke from God is like. But let's listen again to the writer and what he's asked. Can you hear him ask, why? Why? Why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot? It's charged. It's rhetorical. Why? Because it's in vain. It's it's foolish. It's futile. Conspiring against God is these sinners who are on the earth. Did you notice? They are on the earth. Verse 2. But let's look at verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Their conspiracy is futile because this is the God in heaven. Fighting against God is completely useless. It's silly for created beings to fight their creator. But so many of us, and I include myself, do it. So what is this proclamation? What is the promise? In the midst of this rebellion, this is the eternal proclamation. God installs his king and his kingdom here on earth. Look with me at verse 6. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. My king. 
capital K, singular, not one of the many kings, plural. And where is he? He's in Zion. Zion is nothing impressive. I've actually been there. It's in Jerusalem. It's, it's not a mega fortress protected by the guns of Navarone. No, it's a little patch of land on a hill in a backwater for the world's civilizations. It's nothing special. God says he will bring about his kingdom from this tiny, little, puny, unimpressive plot like that tiny, puny, unimpressive mustard seed in the New Testament that grows so big that the birds of the air perch in its branches. God installs his king and his kingdom here on earth and Zion. And God says that this king will be a son. God decrees his son will be king of the nations. Look with me at verse 8. I will make the nations your inheritance. This psalm is looking forward, it's anticipating Jesus. And we know actually that this psalm is about Jesus because lots of passages in the New Testament talk about that. In Hebrews, it talks about it twice, and we read one of them in Acts 4, but also in Acts 13, it's it's talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus is the King, God's Son installed on Zion. Now reading this, you might think this King is unnecessarily brutal. It's a bit short-tempered. But actually, this mode of ki- the mode of kingship of Jesus is different. Jesus' kingship comes through suffering. This king was not born in a luxurious palace, but in a lowly barn and laid in a feeding trough. This king didn't come demanding people bow down to him, But he took the position of a lowly slave and he washed his friend's grubby feet. This king didn't arrive conquering the city on a horse. No, he arrived on a borrowed donkey with unrespectable children heralding his arrival. This king was not enthroned on a golden throne with a diamond encrusted throne. No, he was enthroned on a cross, crowned with some knotted thorns. And the sign above his throne was in three languages, so everyone knew he was the king. This is Jesus, king of the Jews, king of kings, and king of the universe. Acts 4, it tells us that this crucifixion of Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we've read in this passage The nations conspired against Jesus on the cross. And it goes on, it says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Jesus won the victory through dying. His way of kingship is so different to the ways of this world. But it doesn't end there. Jesus was exalted and glorified on the cross, but he's now exalted and glorified at the right hand of God. Revelation 19 actually picks up on this again, and it's fulfilled again at the end of time, because by then, Jesus will come back as the conquering king. That's the promise in verse 9. He will rule the nations with an iron scepter. 
That bit hasn't happened. We look forward to it. We anticipate it. The eternal proclamation has been inaugurated. The Son has come, but his kingdom is not fully fulfilled yet. The king currently rules from Zion. We are Zion, his church. Just as Mao said, we don't want Christ or his followers in our country, God started with his agenda. I suspect he probably laughed. I will install my king's church in China, and the gates of hell will not prevail. As the church was forced underground, the world was unaware of one of the greatest moves of God ever to happen since Jesus walked the world 2,000 years ago. The church in China has exploded as Christians gather together in secret in homes, in barns, and in fields. From 3 million, the church in China grew to an estimated 130 million. Exponential growth. God cannot be mocked. Nothing is going to prevent his work from happening here on earth. Our final section is it's the sort of personal bit of the psalm. It's the final ver- three verses. And there's an encouragement and a warning in it. Turn, turn to God. Rejoice. Rejoice with trembling, we're, set, we're told in verse 11. And finally, embrace, embrace the Son. Kiss the Son, as it says here. I suspect one of these may be particularly relevant. Not, not all of them may be relevant for you, but maybe one of them is relevant for you. Turn, firstly. Turn to God. Turn to the almighty God and his son, the king. These kings of the earth are warned to be wise. Turning to God is a wise decision. And the New Testament word for this is repentance. It's a 180-degree turn towards God changing your mind, completely changing everything. And I've discovered, I think many people find repentance a really negative word. But actually, in the Bible, it's a very positive word. Turning to God means turning from all that leads to death in our life, and hurt, and pain, and turning to the life giver, the one who forgives sinners. Turning to the eternal king is the best decision we can make. If we've never turned our lives to God, tonight is as good a time as any to start turning our life to him. Decide to let him be your king, the one who's got the authority in our lives. I properly, I had to make that decision for myself. I made that when I was 16. And it was as if my life changed from fighting against God to being able to shelter in his refuge. Completely changed my life. It was amazing. It still is amazing. Secondly, rejoice. Rejoice in a relationship with God. Verse 11 says, rejoice with trembling. Maybe you call yourself a follower of Jesus, but there's an area of your life where you need to turn to God. We're called to rejoice with trembling. Be happy that God has your name in the book of life. But maybe there's something that's affecting your fellowship with God. Maybe there's a relationship you're in that you know is wrong, or you're in a lifestyle that you know God doesn't want you in. 
Like the rulers, you want to be free from the fetters. Get rid of them, God. But God's ways, I've come to discover, are the secret way of wisdom in this world. Surely the Creator knows exactly what's best for His creation. Personally speaking, I was in a really as difficult relationship at uni, on and off, and I know it wasn't what God wanted. And I should have got out of it, but um, I'm a pretty stubborn guy. I stayed in it. Um, I won't tell you how long. <laughs> and I actually eventually had to leave it, and I really experienced freedom that God wanted me to experience out of that relationship. And that was something. I had a relationship with the Lord, but I had to turn um, and, and rejoice with trembling. I had to get rid of that, that element in my life that, was, that wasn't right. Finally, embrace. Embrace King Jesus. Kiss the Son, it says, verse 12. Uh, kiss the Son. I think there's two sides of it. One is very clearly um, there's a fear because this king has got to kiss the Son, otherwise he's going to be destroyed in an instant. But obviously, kiss the sun. There's an element to which there's a romance. There's a real love in it. And if you're at all like me, there are times in your life when your love for Jesus will grow cold. When you lose that first love. The thrill of spending time with the Lord in prayer and worship. Have you lost it? When I was 16, I was, I was explaining um, over that summer, my faith had moved from my head down to my heart incredible i was consumed with such a love and one of the big things for me was i always i did things out of ought i had a bit of a faith but i did things because i ought to do them you know when you're in a relationship you ought to do things because it's the right thing but when i really um fell in love with the lord i i wanted to do things because i loved him and it really changed my life and i think there are times in our lives we've we've got to rediscover rekindle that love for jesus um, all, all romantic relationships need that love worked at. If Olivia and I, my wife, if we get too busy, we don't see enough of each other, the romance, inevitably, it just gets squeezed out. Juliet grins. Thanks. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm busy. These are all things we say, and they're all things we struggle with. Is it a London thing? I don't know. Is it a young professional thing? I don't know. As Charles said, no, no one's too busy. You're just busy with what, you're pri with what you prioritize. Your lack of time with Jesus is because something else is your attention more than him. Has your love for Jesus growing cold? What are the steps you need to put in place to readjust that balance? This passage as we've noticed, has drawn a big contrast. It's drawn a contrast between the kings of the world and the king, Jesus. Jesus the king. And it's worth thinking about who are the kings in today. I think if we were talking about the kings, I suppose Will and Kate, they are big culture uh, shakers. Um, but I think you're also going to include your presidents, your prime ministers, your M MPs, heads of the media, journalists, um, those who present Saturday night TV, those in the big businesses of companies or law firms or accountancy firms. These are the people who dictate culture and society. If you're in one of these positions, 
or even you're in waiting, one day you'll eventually become a king of this world. I think the warning is that you need to heed is bow the knee to King Jesus. Put him at the center of your life. Do things in a way that he's honored, that he's um, glorified. So to close, turn to Jesus. Do you need to turn to him? Rejoice with trembling. Is there an area of your life you need to get right with God? And embrace the sun as your love growing cold. The observant ones of you will be wondering why there isn't three points that start with P or there's no alliteration. I want to close by thinking about the kingship of Jesus. The psalm is, as many commentators think, a coronation psalm to celebrate at the king, at the, the coronation of the king. Kings rule with scepters. It's nah, but it is a scepter. Scepters, what do they symbolize? They symbolize power. They symbolize authority. They symbolize royalty. They symbolize divinity. Uh, a year ago, I went to the Tower of London. Um, Olivia, my wife, she was doing a school trip there, and so we were doing the preparatory trip. Um, she did the risk assessment, and I marveled at the crown jewels. They're incredible. The scepters with the British, mon- the, the British monarch reigns with are amazing. If you look at the, um, a video of Queen Elizabeth, she's holding a scepter in each hand, actually, when she gets crowned. Kings and queens rule with scepters. As we read, Jesus is the one who rules with an iron scepter. He's got all the power, all the authority, all heavenly royalty, and he's not only divinely ordained as king, he's divine himself. He's the king who rules. Fighting against Jesus is one of the most futile things I can do, and it's one of the most futile things you can do. But taking refuge in him is one of the wisest things we can do. The psalm closes. Read with me, verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, the king. He's the ruler, the one we can take refuge in. Help us not to fight him, but to rejoice in him and to love him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.